everyone to episode 71, Breast Cancer Proliferation. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm hanging in there, Kiki. I've been a real road warrior of late, last couple of weeks, ramming around the Northeast Corridor, but I'm back, settled. I'm excited to talk about the proliferation of breast cancer. Do I have that right? Are we talking about proliferation of the disease and diagnosis or of the cancer in the body? The cancer in the body. Oh, man, we got to stop that breast cancer. It's, right. It's getting on my nerves. Stop the cells. There are researchers working on that, like our guest today, which is going to be very exciting. But we should kind of get down to business, right? Let's go right to the chase. I'm ready. All right, everyone, make sure you engage with us on all of our channels. The easiest way to do that is by going to stemcellchannels.com, where you can easily access all of our stem cell tools, like signing up for our newsletter. If you sign up for the newsletter, we're going to email you when a new show is released. That email is going to contain all the links to the papers we discuss, as well as a detailed show summary. This is going to make your life easier. You're going to be happy, smiling. You know, it's wonderful. So you can sign up there. Also sign up for our Stem Cell Forum. We have created the first forum for all things stem cells called Stem Cell Chat. Go sign up for free and join the conversation. And of course, you can always follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And today, Dalen, our guest is wonderful. The show is going to be wonderful. Our guest is Dr. Christine Pratt for this episode 71. Her latest study sheds light on the mechanisms underlying breast cancer proliferation related to the BRCA1 gene mutations and potential therapeutic treatments that'll come out of that. And we're really looking forward to talking with her about this a little later in the show. But first, you ready for the roundup? I'm ready. I want to get into it. The Science Roundup is sponsored by Biotechni. Biotechni brings together the prestigious life science brands of R&D Systems, Novus Biologicals, Tocris Bioscience, and Protein Simple to provide stem cell researchers with high-quality reagents that will optimize and standardize their workflow. Go to stemcellpodcast.com and click on the banner for more info. All right, Kiki, we're rolling. I can feel it. Do you feel the pace? <laughs> I we're know. like, we got somewhere to be. We're running. We're running. We got to go. Well, I mean, you're, you're road warrioring it. So, you know, you set the pace right off the top. <laughs> Maybe we can slow down a little bit, ease into the roundup. All right, you start. Let's bring it back. I don't, this is not easy to talk about. This oh, first man. story is it's really not. not easy to talk about. It's no fun at all for me to discuss. We know that the Republican and Democratic National Committees are doing their conventions and they're releasing their platforms for the upcoming election season. Well, the 2016 Republican platform stands against, and this is the official party platform that was released last week during the Republican convention, details on scientific issues In regards to embryonic stem cells, I quote, We oppose embryonic stem cell research. That's it, right? We oppose the federal funding of embryonic stem cell research. So they don't want to give money to it. We support adult stem cell research. It's 
good, and urge the restoration of the National Placental Stem Cell Bank. And then that goes. They went on to say, "We oppose federal funding for harvesting embryos." It's the the right to life stance, and you know where that where are they drawing that line? So placental stem cell bank, that's great. Adult stem cell research, that's great. But then the funding and the opposition to embryonic stem cell research in total, that is, that's not really anything new. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you're being pretty generous, Kiki. Look at you. You're being political in the season, it seems. It might oh, no. as well be like, Sorry. Um, you know, we oppose everything effectively. It's not like there's a lot of people getting out there saying, we oppose adult stem cell research, but we're okay with embryonic stem cell research. I think it's mostly oppose, oppose, oppose. What else do they oppose, Kiki? Oh, they also, uh, well, it seems like they oppose climate change. Quote, climate change is far from this nation's most pressing national security issue. Hmm. This is the triumph of extremism over common sense, and Congress must stop it. So I don't know if they're trying to say that Congress needs to stop climate change or just, (laughs) I don't know what that is. Congress must stop it. I mean, Congress (laughs) must stop debating it. Congress must just stop it. Like that Bob Newhart skit from Saturday Night Live years and years ago. Stop it. Just stop it. Stop caring about it. Yeah, I don't know. Also, in regards to fetal tissue research, quote, we urge all states and Congress to make it a crime to acquire, transfer, or sell fetal tissues from elective abortions for research, and we call on Congress to enact a ban on any sale of fetal body parts. Oh, well, that's no surprise either. I'll no. tell you, I was considering voting for the Donalds. But now with these new this new information, you know, he has a great domestic, economic, foreign policy agenda, but this this is going to this is going to This, is, this puts it over. This puts it over yeah, the edge it's for you. too much for okay. me, yeah, I'm afraid. Yeah. Uh, anyway, politics, politics, politics. They do affect science and the funding of scientists. So these are important issues to bring up for the stance of the Republican National Party. And what the what the contestants <laughs> in the upcoming contest are going to be standing behind. Let's go from some more United States news. The United States is not a leader in everything. We love to drive, but we're behind in road safety. We're not doing so well. In 2013, 32,894 people in the United States died in motor vehicle crashes. This number is down Mm. since the year 2000. That's great. It is. Yeah. So the death rate is 10.3 per 100,000 people. Not great, but it tops 19 other high-income countries. This is reported by the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, reported on July 8th. Belgium is second place for motor vehicle crashes with uh, 6.5 deaths per 100,000. But they also looked at the data on vehicle crash deaths. World Health Organization was involved in this, and they found seatbelt use and alcohol-impaired driving was involved as well. United States, we've got a lot of people, 87% in 2013, saying that they wear seatbelts when they're riding in the front seat of vehicles. Is that a lot of people? 87%. I, I mean, what? Everybody wears seatbelts. 
<laughs> I guess not everybody, but 87%. That's pretty good. I mean, I'll take it. I'll take yeah. it. Yeah. And then we have in Canada actually having the highest percentage of fatal drunk driving caused crashes. 33.6% of their crashes were alcohol involved. We're second, tied with New Zealand. 31% of our accidents caused by alcohol. Drunk drivers. So we're not getting that message across to people well enough that they should not get behind the wheel if they are inebriated. But Canada, even though it was ahead of us in the drunk driving category, it and 16 other countries were better than us on seatbelt use. So even though we've got that 87% going for us, it's still not great. Spain, this is cool, saw the biggest drop in its crash death rate at 75% drop. This happened likely, it was correlated with improving nearly all aspects of road safety, decreasing alcohol-impaired driving, and increasing seatbelt use. Good for Spain. Pulling it together. I'm proud of them. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Uh, Moving on into some other interesting news. What's in our guts might affect what's in our brains. We don't know how, but there's some really interesting research in the literature starting to get a lot of evidence that the microbiota in our guts possibly affects our heads. We have another correlative story that was published in Scientific Reports July 21st, finding that an antibiotic regime given to mice that are genetically modified to develop A-beta plaques in their brain, the Alzheimer plaque in their brains, they didn't have as many plaques if they got antibiotics as mice that did not, the control mice. Antibiotics, like, all the time, though. All the time. So they they were fed a cocktail of antibiotics, basically, from birth. They were just given these antibiotics all the time. And the mice that didn't receive the drugs had a normal amount of these A-beta plaques for mice that had been genetically engineered to develop them. Those that had the antibiotics had a different population makeup of the species of microbiota, of bacteria in their guts. They had a very, not really diverse population because of the antibiotics, presumably. They also had fewer plaques in their brains, and the plaques that were there were smaller, and it shifted. So it went from less plaques to more just soluble A-beta protein in the blood. Now, we don't know whether the microbial shift in the gut is responsible for the effects in the brain or whether there's some other aspect of the antibiotic regimen that possibly shifted bacteria in the brain or the molecules that the bacteria were producing having an influence. We don't know exactly what caused the change in this Alzheimer's plaque-causing protein in the mouse brains, but there was a shift. And so now this is something, just a really interesting direction to move in. Could antibiotics or molecules that are related to the bacteria inhibit plaque formation in the human brain. Could this be a direction we can go in to start treating Alzheimer's? Interesting. It's a, I wonder how it works. I mean, it's pretty thin on mechanism, and of course, I wouldn't expect them to figure it out all told, but you wonder what the downside is of having antibiotics in your system for your entire life. Not to say that yeah. that's a proposed therapy, but clearly they're going to have to work on that before it's in the clinic. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe it is something to do with the population. Like, what is the the population makeup? Maybe certain people have some kind of bacteria that produces some B vitamin or doesn't or eats up some kind of nutritional molecule that should be getting into the blood to be getting to the brain. I mean, there's some maybe there's some kind of influence because of the species of bacteria that are there. And maybe not antibiotics, but maybe we can, through diet, help people influence their microbial makeup. You know, there are really interesting questions that need to be answered here, but I, I think it's really cool. Sure. Oh, and not so much about bacteria, but, but kind of. Do you bite your nails? I used to, you know. Everyone said it was a habit. I remember I, I bit my nails, like, because I didn't have a nail clipper for, like, years. <laughs> and then I just stopped. I got a nail clipper, and I just never did it again. So. <laughs> Buy a nail clipper. Stop biting your nails. I'm a nervous chewer. Mm-hmm. When I'm working on a paper or, like, when I'm working on a video or writing something, but I think I chew on my nails. It's like a, a thinking habit that's really terrible. But I don't know. Maybe it helps keep me healthy. I don't know. There's the silver lining. (laughs) Uh, Research that is out of New Zealand, uh, researchers looked at a 1,000 children in the ages of 5, 7, 9, and 11. Parents were asked if their kids sucked their thumbs or bit their nails. And then at 13 years old, so this is a longitudinal study, the kids came into a clinic to get an allergen skin prick test. And so they used common allergens like pet dander, wool, dust mites, fungus, and they scratched the skin and put the allergens in and see if it has an inflammatory response. And then the kids whose parents said, and I quote, certainly to the question of thumb sucking or nail biting, <laughs> it's not like a, oh, yeah. No, it's a certainly. My child certainly does this. Well, it is New Zealand. They're enthusiastic, you know? (laughs) Yeah, these kids were less likely to have an allergic reaction. Yeah, and so this was uh, published in the July 11th issue of Pediatrics. And the benefit seemed to last for a while. Childhood thumbsuckers had fewer allergic reactions at age 32. And so maybe there's the hygiene hypothesis that suggests that as a child, if you are exposed to certain germs and I use that phrase very broadly, that it could train the immune system and help the immune system not overreact as you get older. So it's like this idea you grow up in the country around cows, you roll around in the dirt, play with dogs, that you're going to be less likely to have allergies as you age. So the question is, is it supposed to encourage this kind of a habit? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the researcher, Robert Hancox, says, we don't have enough evidence to suggest that parents change what they do. Perhaps if children have habits that are difficult to break, there's some amount of consolation for parents that there might be a reduced risk of developing allergy. Good. Again, New Zealanders are so optimistic. Yeah. But I don't, I'm worried about your stories today, Kiki. I mean, <laughs> so it's antibiotics, depleting your whole microbiota, thumb sucking, and nail biting. Next thing you know, I'm going to be putting my infant to sleep on his stomach while smoking a cigar in the room or something. Yeah. I mean, what, what else is contraindicated that you're going to be telling me to do in five minutes? I don't know. Well, my last story is not contraindicated. It's just a really cool discovery published in Nature July 20th. Neuroscientists looked at the brains of 
210 healthy people. And they did a whole bunch of magnetic resonance imaging, functional magnetic resonance imaging. They looked at the brains of these people when they were doing nothing. They looked at their brains when they were doing specific tasks. They also did imaging that allowed them to get detailed anatomical data about the shape and the thickness of the cortex. Doing this, they were able to discover that each hemisphere contains 97 more regions than have been described before. So they were able to actually specify 180 areas in each half of the outer layer or cortical regions of the brain. And so in effect, they're redrawing the cortical map of the human brain. We're getting much greater resolution as to what functions occur in which parts of the brain. And this is going to be just fantastic as a reference for surgeries, for understanding what's happening in the brain uh, as a result of damage for various reasons. And it's just a really pretty, they've got really pretty pictures. <laughs> they've got a really pretty picture of the brain. It's very beautiful. So this is a, just a great step forward, giving us just a higher relief image to knowing where things are happening in the brain. And it's going to help medicine. It's going to help research. And it's pretty. Well, it's pretty amazing is what it is. Uh, this whole brain project is at the Allen Brain Institute. There's all these efforts, I think, that are converging on understanding the brain. Remember Raj Katapa? We yeah. talked to him a few weeks back, and he kind of intimated that he wanted to start something that, that wouldn't be figured out, that he could work on for the rest of his life into his old age that no one would really have totally figured out. But yeah. I think he may have underestimated how quickly we're moving on the brain. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a giant leap forward in understanding the brain. It's, gonna, it's going to be very useful. But that does it for me for the roundup. How about you? It's a good segue. Talking about the brain and mapping, I'm going to start the stem cell roundup talking about a study in the brain and some of the unappreciated kind of crosstalk instructional cues that are given to stem cells in the brain. So, Professor Fiona Deutsch, her research team in Basel, University of Basel, has discovered that the choroid plexus, a largely ignored structure in the brain that produces the cerebrospinal fluid, is an important regulator of adult neural stem cells. Mm. This was a study recently published in Cell Stem Cell, and it also, in addition to showing this relationship, it shows that the signal secreted by the choroid plexus into the cerebrospinal fluid dynamically change as you age, which may account, in part at least, for some of the, you know, phenotypes of aging, you know, dementia, becoming kind of forgetful, generally harping on things, talking about <laughs> how young people are the worst. Our kids these days. <laughs> it's all in the choroid plexus. So in the adult brain, neural stem cells give rise to neurons throughout life. The stem cells reside in these unique microenvironments, these so-called niches that provide signals that regulate stem cell self-renewal versus differentiation. So the stem cells in the adult brain are in contact with the ventricles, which are the cavities which in the brain that are filled with this cerebrospinal fluid that it bathes and protects the brain. But, uh, you know, that's its appreciated function. But the CSF, that cerebrospinal fluid that's produced, and it's known that's produced by the choroid plexus, 
it's not really been appreciated as a signaling mechanism, as a, as a means of uh, promoting or conveying signals to yeah. the stem cells. So Dr. Professor Deutsch, her group, has shown that the cord plexus is a real key component of the stem cell niche in a regulatory capacity, and that the properties of this niche, the cord plexus, it changes throughout life, and that affects stem cell behavior. So specifically, they uncovered that CSF contains a variety of important signaling factors and that they actually control and regulate stem cell differentiation and self-renewal. And as you age and the level of stem cell divisions and you know, formation of new neurons is decreased, the group has shown that that coincides with a modulation of the signals that are secreted into the CSF. To quote Violetta Silva Vargas, who was the first author in the study, one reason is that signals in the old choroid plexus are different. As a consequence, stem cells receive different messages and are less capable of forming new neurons during aging. In other words, compromising the fitness of stem cells in this brain region can you know, lead to depleted function. But what's really amazing, this is again quoting the first author, is that when you cultivate old stem cells with signals from young cerebrospinal fluid, they can be stimulated to divide. So it's like you're rebooting, reprogramming the old stem cells using the factors from the young cerebrospinal fluid, which suggests that the origin or the etiology of maybe some of this neurological stem cell dysfunction may be in the fluid and maybe in the signals that are lost in that fluid. And this is obviously a big idea because it means that maybe we can, by supplying rejuvenated factors in the, our rejuvenated fluid, that we may be able to infuse uh, older patients like me or on the verge of dementia. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe able to bring me back to life. Yeah. Have you heard uh, the research where they've sewed together the circulatory systems of I, old and young mice and the older mice? Yes. And the, the yeah. older mice start behaving more like younger mice. Their cognitive skills become more similar to those of younger mice. So maybe this is part of that. Young blood, young signals. Blood is involved in the creation of the cerebrospinal fluid, so to one degree or another. So maybe there is an interplay there that's important. Yeah, I think for sure. It's. I think that's a great, there's poetry to that idea because I feel like it's, you know, the dawn of medicine, people are always talking about and the, the humors and all this stuff. And it, it was this idea out there that you could replace the blood of an old man with the blood of a young man and thereby rejuvenate them. So we've come full circle. We're back in the medieval times with our medical. Either that or in a vampire film. <laughs> yeah, so I, don't, I wonder if there's cerebrospinal fluid vampire. I guess that's zombies. <laughs> zombies. It's a, it's a zombie thing. <laughs> so great. World War Z won't be such a bad thing. No. All right, so let's move on to something. I love these other, you know, studies that kind of bring engineering and stem cells and orthopedics all together. This is a study that shows that cartilage grown from stem cells could replace hip implants. Researchers from Washington University School of Medicine and SciTech Therapeutics have found a way to program stem cells to grow new cartilage on a 3D template on the ball of a hip joint. Wow. Not only that, but the cartilage then releases these anti-inflammatory molecules that can help fend off new occurrences of arthritis. That's awesome. It is. I mean, this is true bionics. 
the new technology, but it's like biobionics. I, yeah. I love it. Biomedconics, something ridiculous like that. <laughs> the, the tech, it could result, I mean, the obvious application is, a, is an alternative to traditional hip replacement. So instead of doing like a full hip replacement, according to the author, uh, Farshid Gulak, we've developed a way to resurface the arthritic joint using a patient's own stem cells to grow new cartilage combined with gene therapy to release anti-inflammatory molecules to keep arthritis at bay. Our hope is to prevent or at least delay a standard metal or plastic prosthetic joint replacement. Okay, so just technically speaking, the cartilage is made from the patient's own skin stem cells that are isolated from fat beneath the skin. And then a 3D biodegradable synthetic scaffold is molded into the shape of the joint. And then it's covered with this, these cells that form cartilage. And then once the scaffold biodegrades, the idea is that you can, you know, put this cell coating onto the joint and then give a drug. And once you give the drug, it'll cause these cells to secrete these anti-inflammatory molecules. So they'll not only make new cartilage that'll help to cushion the joint and the socket, but they'll also, on cue, be able to secrete these inflammatory molecules. Quote, when there is inflammation, we can give the patient a simple drug which activates the gene we've implanted to lower inflammation in the joint. Makes sense, doesn't it, Kiki? Absolutely. This is exciting. Yeah, the this, this scaffold, it's made of like a, a weave of these biodegradable fiber bundles, and uh, it gives it the stability and, you know, of, of normal cartilage, and it can withstand a load of up to 10 times a patient's body weight. I don't know why you need all of that, but hey, I guess better to sit. People jump, and so you have you uh, know gravitational forces that increase you know G's, and so as a result, you have when you jump and land, you're not landing just with your body weight; you're landing with the force of your body weight times you know mass times acceleration, you know all that kind of stuff. You're an but, engineer, yeah. Kiki. Look at you! Wow, <laughs> bringing out the knowledge. So listen to this. I love this. Is my favorite part. You know, I love this. Should all go well, we could see some devices ready for human testing in three to five years. Oh, not five yes. to ten. Three to five. Three to five. There Very we go. aggressive. Very aggressive. Super aggressive. <laughs> but hey, I mean, I can't wait to see. We'll see about these guys. Washington University, I mean, they don't mess around. So I, I think this is not just one of those half-baked things. This is something that's clearly already being developed for testing. Should be a big deal. So next, I want to shoot into something. It's not exactly a new stem cell story, but I think it's important for people who are interested in, you know, a lot of people ask the question, when are we going to see this stuff come to fruition? We always joke, five to ten years. Well, instead of just making promises on the timeline, a new review by Natalia Tapia and Hans Scholler, who is a virtual god in the stem cell world, a review in Cell Stem Cell, they kind of broke it down and they figured out what are the molecular obstacles to clinical translation of iPSCs just briefly to review, you know, the potential of iPSCs, the induced pluripotent stem cells is obvious. You can take it from a patient, reprogram it, make any of the cells in their body. But there's three major problems. One, these cells may be tumorigenic. Mm. Two, they may be rejected even though they're patient matched. They still may be, you know, immunogenic or inflammatory in their application. And three, it's a question of, like, whether they function, whether they do what they're supposed to. Depending on the source of cells, you get hugely variable function. So pretty much Dr. Scholler and Dr. Tapia, they just, you know, went through the paces. They discussed whether the th therapeutic obstacles are specific 
to the methods of reprogramming, are they inherent to all reprogramming methods? It's a fundamental obstacle, or we just got to tweak the recipe. And, you know, other types of things, namely whether or not if we get a better mechanistic understanding. So all these studies that are coming out saying this is how reprogramming works. If we continue to decipher and unravel the mechanism of reprogramming, is that going to help and improve the fidelity of reprogramming and subsequently the quality of the iPS cells and, and the derivative tissues that you get from them? So it's a nice review for uh, you know, maybe someone who's not so familiar with the field and a nice review for experts as well. Yeah, it, these kinds of reviews are so important because it really gets a hand, helps people get a handle on the state of the research and the entire field and kind of go, okay, this is this is what I've been needing and how can I think around this to get to next steps? Exactly. How can we make the next step in progress? How can we get there? Exactly. Sometimes you just need someone to, you know, take the temperature, yeah. see what's going on, you know. All right, so this is another, oh, you know, we're moving so fast. There's a whole league of, of cell types that you can get from endoderm germ layer, okay? The most clinically relevant ones you might mention are the liver, the pancreas, the gut. Also, the lung is derived from the endodermal germ layer, although people don't really talk about it. But, you know, typically the way we go through generating cells and tissues is from induced pluripotent stem cells or embryonic stem cells. And there's this another idea of the direct reprogramming, okay? And all these methods, they use a different, a lot of different uh, protocols, but I think what we're moving towards in terms of at least fitting into a clinical paradigm is that we don't want to introduce genes and overexpress things and make cells that may be tumorigenic. There's all these issues that the review I just mentioned will take into account really well. So a, a really important, I think, and, and maybe practical method is to use these small molecules, to use these non-oncogenic or non-gene integrative mechanisms of generating clinically useful cells. So this is a group out of China, the Pay Lab, in cell stem cell. They showed that uh, they could generate using cells that were isolated from human gastric epithelial cells, which are readily available by biopsy. They showed that they could incubate them in a cocktail of defined small molecules, along with kind of like you know, mixed bag of unknown tissue-specific factors from mesenchymal feeders, so a, a defined cell type and defined small molecules, no gene overexpression. They were able to generate these induced en endodermal progenitor cells. These cells were able to clonally expand in culture and give rise to hepatocytes, pancreatic endocrine cells, and intestinal epithelial cells. And the hepatocytes that were derived from these cells were able to rescue liver failure in a mouse model of uh, liver failure uh, after being transplanted in. Wow. This is a big deal because, you know, they pretty much covered the bases. They've shown they're easy to generate. You can generate them indefinitely and get a, you know unlimited amount of them in culture. They can generate all these really clinically important cell types that function in an actual animal model that recapitulates elements of disease and, most importantly, when you transplant them into mice, they do not give rise to teratomas. So it seems like it's a safer alternative to the iPS cells, which do have that tumorigenic potential. So this is a big deal for this group and for anyone who's interested in hepatic, you know, pancreatic, or any kind of dysfunction of endodermal derivatives. 
Yeah, and alcoholics around the world can rejoice yeah. that yes. <laughs> a treatment for their liver failure is around the corner. Open another bottle, my friends. <laughs> as long as you keep your gastric epithelium intact, which is not always guaranteed. That's true. Things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but good news. Good news for sick people everywhere. And lastly, I've got one, another one of these engineering stories, the BioInc. I know we talked about BioInc and printing a while back, I don't know where that story's gone, but we're checking in on another type of uh, stem cell approach, which is they call it a stem cell containing bio ink that you can use for 3D printing of live tissue, which is this idea of bioprinting that's been prevalent for a few years now. It makes it no less impressive using this kind of inkjet approach, spraying them. But this has a, a two-hit approach. It's two different polymer components. One is a natural polymer that you can extract from seaweed, and one is this, quote-unquote, sacrificial synthetic polymer that's used in the medical industry. So both of these are kind of amenable to clinical application. And the way it worked is that the synthetic polymer causes the bio-ink to change from liquid to solid at, the, at a higher temperatures so as the temperatures increased, and the seaweed polymer provides the structural support and the nutrients that the cells can glom onto and be allowed to grow. So this is a, you know, another one of these ideas of making organs using these bioprinters, uh, led by researcher Adam Perriman from the School of Cellular and Molecular Medicine, who says designing a new bioink was extremely challenging. You need a material that is printable, strong enough to maintain its shape when immersed in nutrients, and that is not harmful to the cells. We managed to do this, but there was a lot of trial and error before we cracked the final formulation. So it seems like everyone's kind of got their own witch's brew, and it's a little bit at the stage of alchemy here. But the point is, is that we're moving closer and closer to something that is both functional and has the structural integrity, but is also able to integrate into the body. And although the, the team is really now just doing the preliminaries, they're generating osteoblasts and chondrocytes in order to engineer it into a structure, 3D structure. In this case, they made a full-size tracheal cartilage ring, making those tissue types, which is important. You know, making any kind of live tissue in, in vitro is an amazing feat. And I think that making trachea in particular is precedented. This is something that's been tried. It's been done. Yeah, yeah. it's been done, but at least it's showing that principle can be, it can be fit into their approach there. So I think we're moving towards this like kind of high-throughput 3D bioprinting idea that could be a big, big issue or a big uh, boon for organ replacement or transplant. Yeah, and I think this is, you know, this kind of approach is good because they're starting with cartilage and like with this trachea kind of proof of concept. It's a simple structure, simple tissue, and then from there maybe move on to more complex multicellular tissues. But this is good, step by step. Step by step. Prove it out. Make it work. Start simple, and then we'll move on to making hearts and brains. But, you know, not, not anytime soon. Five to ten years. Five to ten years. But I do hope that we are, you know, getting at the hearts and brains of all of the listeners of this podcast. Very good, Kiki, the way you did that. Yeah, I know. We have finished our roundup. This was a fun roundup, really good. I think uh, I hope you all enjoyed it. Remember that the links to all of these papers are going to be up on the episode show page, which is at stemcellpodcast.com, and they can be emailed directly to you if you sign up for the newsletter. So 
I think it's about time we got into the interview segment of the show. The interview portion is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies is always creating really cool resources for you to be able to learn and access more about pluripotent stem cell research. Their latest offering is the Pluripotent Learning Lounge webinar series. And you can find this, the Pluripotent Learning Lounge, at stemcell.com slash pluripotent lounge. And there you're going to find informative video webinars with stem cell researchers from all around the world, and they're discussing their research methods. It's an educational resource for anyone, established or young researchers, looking to find out more about the latest experimental methods that are being used to study pluripotent stem cells. It's kind of like a brown bag seminar. Nice and easy, but you don't have to actually get up and go anywhere. You can have that brown bag lunch at your desk. You don't have to have showered. It's fine. The next webinar that's upcoming, Janet Rosant. She's going to be talking about disease modeling and future therapies of cystic fibrosis using human pluripotent stem cells. And you can register now for Janet's webinar. Check out her interview and watch other webinars at www.stemcell.com slash Janet. She gets her very own personalized page. I love that. Slash Janet. She deserves it. She's amazing. She's a hero of mine. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm going to get into that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shower, though. I'm going to shower for that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Perfect. Moving on from there, our guest today is another hero, Christine Pratt. She is amazing. Dr. Pratt is an associate professor in the Department of Cellular and Molecular Medicine at the University of Ottawa. She received her PhD in molecular endocrinology from the University of Toronto, and her current work focuses on the role that NF... KB plays in various forms of breast cancer. Her most recent paper in Cell Stem Cell describes the role that this transcription factor, NFKB, plays in perpetuating cell proliferation when it's combined with the BRCA1 gene mutation, identifying it as an important target for therapeutic intervention in breast cancer patients who have this mutation. Welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast, Dr. Pratt. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, my pleasure. As we get started, I think it would be really wonderful if you could tell the audience a bit about your background and how you got into this particular area of study. Well, I actually began more of a, in an endocrinology um, kind of degree and then uh, moved into cancer in my postdoctoral work. And then, to be frank, when my mother developed breast cancer, I was very interested, obviously, in turning my own research in my own lab toward breast cancer. And uh, specifically, I have been interested for a number of years now in um, the role of NF-kappa B, which is, as most people know, is more of an immune cell signaling pathway. Although it's, it's clear that it's pretty important, not just in immune cells, but also in normal cells of various tissues and also in cancer cells as well. So as I said, I was interested in that, and it wasn't really until the um, an article from Maria Jessen's laboratory came out discussing the fact that BRCA1, which is obviously a familiar breast cancer gene, was involved in protecting the replication fork during normal proliferation. And it made me think about the fact that uh, DNA damage all by itself, so without having any external, you know, forces there other than just proliferation 
that there was likely to be DNA damage signaling in the mammary gland when there was a BRCA1 mutation, and also the fact that NF-kappa B was well known at, by that point to be induced by DNA damage. So I put those two things together, and that's sort of how I ended up studying BRCA1 DNA damage and NF-kappa B in the mammary gland. And so starting from endocrinology, you've been involved in some very, very important findings that hormones are also involved in regulating this pathway. Can you talk a little bit about your estrogen findings and kind of lead us into the more recent paper dealing with progesterone and NF-kappa B? Right. So both estrogen, as it turns out, and NF-kappa B are, are very much involved in promoting survival in the mammary gland as well, cell survival in the mammary gland. So estrogen does this in part by um, promoting the production of a protein called BCL2, which is a, an anti, a very key anti-apoptotic gene in the mammary gland, and as well as other cells, of course. And that fact sort of, I guess, really connected the estrogen receptor directly to cancer cells and potentially even resistance to chemotherapeutics in the mammary gland and in mammary cancer. The estrogen receptor also does something else, obviously, uh, aside from in the neural mammary gland, that is, it also induces the production of the progesterone receptor in certain mammary cells. And that actually leads more into uh, the current research in the lab, which is, and we didn't show that fact, obviously, that was, that was demonstrated uh, many years ago, but uh, it turns out that our work from both Jane Visvader's lab and Ramakoka's lab here in Toronto, actually, and partly from Joe Penninger as well, has shown that progesterone induces the um, synthesis of a, a sort of a, a TNF receptor family ligand called RANK ligand. And RANK stands for, the acronym is, is Receptor Activator of NF-kappa B sort of taking it from estrogen to the progesterone receptor to rank ligand, now we have a system in the mammary gland for activating NF-kappa B, my favorite transcription factor, and it plays a major role in normal proliferation in the mammary gland, for instance, in preparation for pregnancy and lactation, and certainly during a pregnancy, there's obviously production of lots of progesterone, and it's preparing the mammary gland by expanding the lobular alveoli system in the mammary gland to prepare for lactation. So, yeah, so it's sort of come full circle in a way in the sense that hormones are doing a lot of things in the mammary gland, but a major thing that they're doing is, is actually mediated through NF-kappa B. So on the subject of uh, hormones and cancer, what do you make of this recent study, which is getting a lot of press from, I think, JAMA, about the non-association, I guess, between you know, assisted reproductive technologies and the increased risk for ovarian and breast cancer. What do you make of that? Well, in terms of assisted reproduction, I mean, we're talking about a very different group of hormones there as well. So, you know, stimulating ovulation, for instance, the hormones involved in that are, are different than progesterone and uh, estrogen. It isn't until after the pregnancy occurs that you begin to have the natural production of those hormones so in terms of ovarian cancer, to be honest, I mean, probably if there was going to be any link at all with assisted reproduction, it would be with ovarian cancer and not with breast. So I can certainly see there from that standpoint. However, I mean, 
a woman has many, many, many ovulations in her lifetime and whether or not, you know, a couple of cycles of assisted reproduction causing, you know, the release of maybe two, three or four eggs at a time, whether or not that significantly adds to her risk. We're talking about maybe a year's worth more of, you know, release of eggs in a lifetime. Probably not. It would be like an early menarche, for instance. Maybe this is a good opportunity to, to zero in on the, the findings from this most recent study in cell stem cell. You could elaborate on those results because it seems like that's really, again, coming full circle, incorporating a lot of your ideas into one, I guess I would call it a, a landmark study, mechanistically speaking. Well, thanks very much. Yeah, th this study actually is interesting, not just by virtue of the fact that it's, for me at least, it was a uh, sort of a compilation of all of the work that we've done in the past, but also the fact that uh, it's turning out that the other system, the rank ligand system, may also uh, sort of feed into this whole idea that DNA damage signaling is responsible for ongoing proliferation in the mammary gland. And so it's sort of two ends of the same story. So from our standpoint, our lab, because we sort of hooked into the idea that DNA damage was actually activating NF-kappa-B in mammary cells, we then could show, and basically through a series of lentiviral-mediated knockdown, gene knockdown studies in mouse uh, mammary progenitors, uh, because we didn't have access to a lot of human tissue, in those cells, we were able to sort of knock out different parts of what we already suspected were part of this pathway, including DNA damage response kinase, part of the DNA damage response is the activation of the kinase ataxia telangiectasia, or ATM, and that kinase is responsible for activating NF-kappa-B. So knockdown of ATM got rid of the NF-kappa-B mediated proliferation in progenitor cells that were deficient in BRCA1, and uh, also P100, which is part of the alternative NF-kappa-B signaling pathway, also got rid of these cells. So when we looked initially at the uh, progenitor cells from mice, uh, let me just take a step backwards, we saw that unlike normal mice, they had a lot of NF-kappa-B in the nuclei of, of these cells. And when we started fractionating the cells by fax, we found that this, the subpopulation was indeed the luminal population of progenitor cells, not the mature luminal and not the basal population of the mammary stem cell enriched fraction, but the luminal fraction. And a couple of years earlier, Jane Visvader had actually shown that it was the luminal population, in fact, that is probably the cell of origin for mammary breast cancers in women with BRCA1 mutations. So that was interesting. We were seeing constitutive NF-kappa-B activity in the cell population that was considered to be the cell of origin. Now, that population, interestingly, had a very unusual trait in that you could culture it in vitro without the addition of hormones. So this cell population was independent of progesterone stimulation, which to me, again, said that there was an intrinsic defect in these cells that went beyond their, say, maybe their hypersensitivity to progesterone. It wasn't just that. It was that they were able to continue to proliferate, even if there was no stimulus. And so when we saw that there was NF-kappa-B constitutively being made in these cells, we knew that that was likely to be the reason for that. And of course, while they are proliferating, they undergo the process of fork stalling, which is, as I told you, what Marie Jessin's lab 
had shown earlier was a defect that you see in cells that are deficient in BRCA1. So without the protection of BRCA1 in, on stalled replication forks, you end up with a DNA damage response, and then you end up with activation of NF-kappa B. The more the cells proliferate, the more DNA damage there is, the more NF-kappa B is induced. And so there's this feed-forward cycle of yeah. NF-kappa B activation in these cells. So the other thing we found was that if you treated those cells in vitro with a compound called DMAPT or dimethyl aminoparthenolide, um, this is a derivative of parthenolide, which itself, the parent compound, is not very soluble in water. So it's not that useful as a drug. But uh, our collaborator, um, Peter Crooks from the University of Arkansas, had uh, developed a, uh, this derivative, which is very water-soluble, which can be orally fed to mice. It doesn't have to be injected. And um, has a, a relatively short half-life, which is a really sometimes a really good characteristic of a drug because you don't want it hanging around forever. Right. When we gave this drug to the mice... And then we looked at their mammary glands. We could take out the mammary glands and assay these cells for their ability to grow without progesterone anymore, just like the human cells showed. They couldn't do it anymore. So we were blocking NF-kappa B, or blocking NF-kappa B probably in something else, in these mammary progenitors, and they lost the ability to continue to grow without progesterone. So it's an interesting finding, not just scientifically, but also potentially clinically where we know that the risk factor in BRCA1 deficient carriers is likely the ability of that genomically unstable population to continue to proliferate. So, as I said, there's another part of the story, and that's again from the Visvader lab and also from Joe Penninger. They just published last month a couple of papers that showed that if you block the rank signaling pathway using a monoclonal antibody strategy denosumab in humans or rank FC in, in mice, you can actually block the development of mammary cancers in BRCA1 deficient in mice, in that mouse model for BRCA1 deficient cancer, breast cancer. So very interesting findings that sort of dovetail with ours in the sense that inhibiting rank is inhibiting that initial proliferative signal through hormones, and inhibiting NF-kappa B at the other end is inhibiting the ongoing proliferation that occurs in response to the hormones. Hopefully this means that, you know, in the next little while, we might be able to offer an alternative, at least maybe to early prophylactic mastectomy to women um, with BRCA1 mutations that they know are deleterious. The compounds that you're using in these studies, how likely is it you'll be able to use these same compounds on people? Have they been tested? Do we know what their potential uses are? It's a really good question. So denosumab is uh, an Amgen product, and it's already in the clinic for basically bone-related disease, so or including metastases to bone. So it's already approved by the FDA. DMAPT is actually currently in clinical trials for hematopoietic cancer. So it's actually being used, as I said, in phase one kind of slash phase two trials for, for leukemias. So far, the, the profile on that drug is very good. It has not a lot of, well, actually, I don't know of any toxicity. The nice thing about DMAPT is that it's, um, when we used it in the mice, it had a long-lasting effect. So it's a little harder on those cells than denosumab is. And it seems as though we could let the mice go for several estrocycles 
before we started to see those abnormal cells come back. So in a woman, that might mean you might only have to take it during the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle, so when the progesterone levels start to climb. Mm -hmm. And you might only have to take it maybe every two or three months for that short period of time, which would be nice because then it wouldn't be every day. And then the other thing is, of course, denosumab as a biologic has to be injected, and DMAPT is a water-soluble, orally bioavailable drug. So, again, it makes things a little easier. So, But... Um, Obviously, there's no FDA approval on this one right now, so we have to wait and see what happens. Would you say it's a, well, I guess I have two questions. It's a prophylactic type thing for women who are BRCA carriers or positive? You would start administering it at menarche? I don't think that that's probably necessary. Most women who have BRCA1 mutations don't begin to get cancers probably until they're in their 30s, 40s, that's when it really okay. starts to pop up. So along those lines, I love this idea, I think, which is I, I love about your study, is this loop where you get the initiation and it causes the inflammatory or damage response, which then feeds back and causes proliferation. So the response to the proliferate damage is increasing proliferation. And that, as you alluded to, is this you know terrible cycle that ultimately culminates in the cancer. But there's got to be some initiating event, right? Because these BRCA mutant patients aren't, like, you know, getting cancer as soon as they get out of the gate, you no. know? No. So there's this idea out there that, like, it's traumas. Like, I know my, my uh, mother-in-law's mother was, uh, had a, a car accident. I mean, I know all these, many of these stories, at least are anecdotal. I just wonder where you come down on it and how it maybe fits into your mechanism there. She had a car accident, and then... Or she had a latent, something latent, she had resected, and then she had a car accident later and immediately, like, was the, this a response where there's growth of a, another neoplasm there. Do you think that maybe the initiating event is like a trauma or some kind of environmental influence that then kicks off this cycle in patients? I would suggest that, um, like all cancers, breast cancers arise over a long period of time. And there definitely is an initiating event, but it is a mutation. It's always a mutation. And in, when we say that BRCA1 mutated uh, cells are genomically unstable, it's because when there's things like replication fork stalling, there's a very good chance that the sort of free ends of the DNA at the replication fork are chewed back because they're not protected properly, and in that case, you will automatically have a mutation. Now, whether or not that mutation causes cancer is a function of probability, right? Right. And so, over time, the probability becomes greater, because some of those cells will survive, maybe for a little longer, and get another mutation in the next round. One thing that actually, it's going to be really interesting, and there have been already some studies that have kind of estimated the time the lifetime of a normal mammary progenitor cell. And the important thing to recognize is that even though those cells are dividing, they're not transformed. They will eventually either differentiate or they will die. I mean, women who have BRCA1 mutations, they can still lactate. They can still nurse their, their children. So many of the cells just go through and make it through and become differentiated, even though they have a, a mutation in BRCA1. So it's just... The cell that just gets the right mutation and maybe gets another one, obviously, because we know it takes more than one mutation usually to result in a cancer. 
or a mutation that allows it to last longer or to live longer than it normally would and then accumulate another mutation later on. It's those kinds of events that precipitate cancers and usually not some, you know, external event, unless you were irradiated or something, in which case you would, you know, accumulate a lot of mutations at the same time. Right. That would be accumulating a lot of mutations and thus damage, <laughs> just radiation-based. <laughs> So from the uh, the stem cell standpoint of this, you're talking about these drugs being able to affect transcription factors that would then reduce proliferation and reduce that, that growth of the mutation load and the damage load. Is there anything that specifically would potentially bring the stem cell population back? Like, can, is there potentially any, any direction that you're looking at being able to actually affect the stem cells where they are in that luminal population? You mean in order to differentiate them or? Yeah, or, or stop them from differentiating as much. So it, it looks as though we're getting a kind of a, um, a senescence of the cells when we, when we give the, the mice DMAPT. The cells, uh, we can't detect a lot of dead cells. So they're either senescing or they're differentiating. They're just getting past the, the proliferative stage. Proliferation by itself is, prevents differentiation. So a lot of the cell cycle factors that are being made while cells are proliferating are blocking normal differentiation. We know that BRCA1 itself plays a big role in the differentiation of the mammary progenitor cells. So this is not to discount the importance of, BR, of BRCA1 itself either, but uh, without BRCA1 and with NF-kappa B activity in the cells, those two factors, they're sort of synergizing and preventing the differentiation of the cells. As I said, we don't see those uh, abnormally proliferative cells after we've given the mice DMAPT, which is... Uh, again, suggests that they're either they differentiated or they've senesced and they're just not visible to us in a functional assay anymore. Have you looked in other organs? Because you, you said earlier on, I think the consensus is NF-kappa B performs at different developmental stages, embryogenesis, and in different organs, and perhaps specific stem cell populations outside of the blood and, as you've shown, the mammary. So do you look in other organs and see either any, um, you know, side effects, effects on other organs in the DMAT mice, and does that give you, or do you have any insight into how NF-kappa B may be recapitulating a similar kind of function, driving proliferation in other stem cell niches? Good two questions. We have not been engaged in doing a lot of testing with DMAT. Um, that, as I said, was is Peter Crook's drug, and a number of people have used this in the past in most models to block the, um, to basically inhibit tumor formation in mice. It's been a very powerful tumor cell inhibitor. So as far as that goes, no. We wouldn't think there would be a lot of damage caused to other organs, primarily because we're only using it for short periods of time. Because again, we're not dealing with cancer cells, we're dealing with relatively normal cells in the sense that they have a limited lifespan. They're not immortalized. So we predicted we'd only have to use it intermittently. We're very interested in actually, and we're collaborating with another group here, to look at whether or not we're actually seeing some of the same changes in ovarian cells because with 
the BRCA1 syndrome, of course, the spectrum of cancers is really dominated by breast and ovarian. So we suspect that there are going to be similar changes in ovarian cells or similar dependence on a kappa B as part of their normal um, proliferative cycle after ovulation. And that may also be why we, we very strongly think, actually, I personally think this is probably one of the reasons why ovarian and breast are so linked to BRCA1 as opposed to other types of tissue. And it's because NF-kappa B is an integral part of their normal proliferative uh, cycle on a monthly basis. So every month there's stimulation, stimulation, whether it's ovulation or, you know, proliferation in the mammary gland. And it's the fact that it's NF-kappa B is the normal signal to divide is why the activation of NF-kappa B by DNA damage causes the cells to divide as well. So as if the answer to DNA damage is just another signal, as, as we've discussed, to divide. And that wouldn't necessarily happen in other tissues. Sometimes NF-kappa B can cause cell death. And in fact, a lot of people have shown that, uh, for instance, after radiation, NF-kappa B is necessary to cause the death of the cell. So it can be programmed in different cells under different circumstances. It may be that the damage is just at that level in, with a BRCA1 mutation, combined with the fact that the cell is already programmed to divide in response to NF-kappa B, that this is why the breast is a target for BRCA1 mutations. And, and maybe, we don't know, but maybe also the ovary. That makes sense. That's a really nice idea. This is just fascinating work. It's um, the idea that we can hone in on these pathways and be able to figure out the important points where we can potentially stick something in and fix it or stop it, slow it down in some way. If we can help people reduce the number of reduce the number of surgeries they have to go through, reduce the impact of these cancers on people's lives, it's just going to be amazing. Yeah, the nice thing too, and it was shown also by by Jane Visvader, who I, I just want to mention has done an enormous amount of work on um, mammary progenitor cells. She showed that, in fact, you could even test the cells. So if you want to make sure that your drug is working, you can do a biopsy and then take the cells from the biopsy to see whether or not they continue to grow, you know, in, a, in an abnormal manner, which I think is amazing because it means you, you actually have an endpoint for your drug. Right. So it's, it's really nice, a really nice idea. And you could do the same thing with DMAP as well. So. This is just great. Are there next steps for you in this research? Where are you going to take it next? We're actually looking at another pathway that we also believe is involved and, again, may also sort of close the circle on ovarian cancer and breast cancer in terms of the kinds of signaling that are activated. And, again, it's coming from a DNA damage standpoint. So until we're sort of worked a little bit more of this pathway out, I don't yeah. really want to say what we're doing, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm a relatively small lab, actually, so I can't afford to sort of blast out ideas before they're developed, So, and it's not really scientifically the right thing to do either. So, Of course, we understand, but needless to say, you've got a lead, and it's a good one, and you're going to yeah. be, you know, Oops. pumping out another high-profile paper with an angle on, on breast cancer, at least. Can you tell us how much? This is breast cancer, the same mammary progenitors we're, we're focused on? Yeah, it's the same idea that um, the sort of pre-malignant gland has signaling going on that's absolutely unusual. It's not a normal situation. And the other thing that we're doing is we're also 
expanding the study to BRCA2 mutations as well. Nice. So both of them are clearly, they're both actually, interestingly, and this is uh, another reason why we think it's very similar, is because, again, Maria Jassin showed that BRCA1 and BRCA2 both protect the replication fork. So they both do, even though they have separate jobs in normal DNA damage repair, they have a, almost a, kind of a similar job, at least, in protecting the replication fork. So again, I, I, we think there's going to be a lot of similarity between the two, although potentially in slightly different progenitor. So Interesting. Yes, probably slightly different progenitors and then also different transcription factors that are involved. Yeah, or at least impinging on, on a different differentiation pathway. Right. This is fantastic work. Well, thank you so much. We're, <laughs> it took a long time. <laughs> what? Years, this, was, this wasn't overnight? What? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. It, uh, it, well, then we know you're not working hard enough. <laughs> no, no, apparently not. Drinking too much coffee. <laughs> We just hope to continue getting funding for it. That's the problem right now. So it's just funding situation is really tough. I know in the States it's been tough, and yep. it's it's actually gotten worse here too. So it's uh, tough times. It is. Yeah, best of luck on that. I mean, if anybody deserves uh, a few bucks for research, it's you. Thank you so much. You need to be in touch with the Canadian government. <laughs> yeah, I'm, give me a call. I'm sure they'll really value my opinion. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really, really appreciate speaking with you and getting to hear in depth about what you're working on and where it could be going. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Welcome. All right. What a great interview. Fascinating. Fascinating. Dr. Pratt telling us about NF-kappa-B and the relationship to breast cancer and the proliferation of these mammary progenitor cells. I just love stories that make sense. You know what I mean? When you hear a scientific story, you're like, ah, that makes sense. To me, that's all. That's all I need to actually be invested in it. What do you think, Kiki? Well, I think that's, you know, the stories that make sense when it just step by, a researcher goes through step by step to discover how something works. And in her case, you know, this feed forward system where it all works together to affect in- and increase proliferation of these mutated cells. I mean, it's beautiful, and it's a story, she said, five years in the making. She worked a long time on it. So it's, you know, it didn't have happen quickly. It's not an overnight success story, but it's one of just really sticking to asking the questions and going down all the roads. And it's just, she's an amazing researcher. She's done a great job. Yeah. But at this point, it's time to close with our rant, right? Yeah, I'm ready to rant. I'm, I'm not uh, moderate, moderately angry. <laughs> okay, everyone, the rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. What are we ranting about today, Dalen? So I've been, you know, on the road, and uh, just most recently I was at the beach, all right? I'm in the beach in Newport, and I was just reflecting on how ridiculous people's relationship with the sun is. There's these people who are just clear. I mean, we live in a day and age where there's no shame. You can just be the vainest person 
while like not everybody knows what it's doing to their skin. They don't care. They just want to go with the oil and the, the skimpy bathing suits. I mean, I'm not going to argue about the skimpy bathing suits. Okay? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not angry about the bathing suits, but I'm a little bit annoyed. I'm annoyed about how people their relationship with the sun. It seems just ridiculous. Yeah, well, I can see. I mean, I'm a pale-skinned person, so I have this relationship that's kind of love-hate. And, you know, I want to go out like all of those wonderfully, like you possibly, olive-skinned, able to get out in the sun, not wear the sunblock, not as much, not wear a hat. I am so jealous of that because... I need to wear Irish strength sunblock. <laughs> it's like as high as the number goes, that's what I need. I need to be wearing hats and scarves. Not that I do this all the time, but I have to be vigilant. And ah, my whole life, I really wished I could just wear, you know, olive oil and just be out there. Maybe you can, Kiki. Maybe Flaunting you can. It. I'm telling you, it was something I'm sure you learned young. I saw it on, in contrast to all the sun worshipers. I saw a lot of parents and maybe it made me feel a little guilty. Maybe I was just trying to, you know, justify my being irresponsible, but they were like dressing their kid up, smearing him with the creams. And then look, by the end, the kid looked like a geisha going into space. There was like a, a, a not even a beach day for this kid. It was like he was getting outfitted to go shoot paintball or something. I mean, it's just it seems to me a little bit much on the other side, too. We need to just chill out. Take a little bit of sun. It's good for your vitamin D. You're not going to get MS. Talk to Dr. Freeman about that. Right. <laughs> and just chill out, Kiki. You can be you're OK. You don't need Irish strength. Maybe just, you know. Like Portland strength. Portland, <laughs> special Portland strength sunblock. I don't know. Yeah, everyone just be happy with the melanomas. That's fine. <laughs> just fine. Yeah, you yeah. sound like my wife. Don't <laughs> let her hear this rant or I'm never going to hear the end of it. Oh, my goodness. Everyone out there, send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast. Or you can email us, stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. Dalen, this concludes episode 71 of the Stem Cell Podcast. It was so full of great information, and the interview was wonderful. Loved talking with Dr. Pratt. Everyone, be sure to tune in for our next episode. Of course, we're going to be delivering the latest in the scientific papers picked by us, and we will have a great interview. Dalen, I am looking forward to next time. Me too, Kiki. Thanks to you. Thanks to everybody. And get out there in the sun a little bit. Kiki, I'm serious. You need to enjoy your life. You're just saying I'm too pale. I get it. I get it. <laughs> oh, my. You'll look young forever, though. That's the good news.